Now, some of you are surprised to see me um, up here preaching again this week, but I'm just making good on my New Year's resolution to preach more in 2023. I'm just kidding. Our, my name is Bobby. I'm uh, the assistant pastor here. Our, our senior pastor, uh, Pastor Sexton, is, is on vacation, so I'm preaching again this week. And this week, we are bookending the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we looked at the visit of the wise men to Jesus just after his birth, and this week, we're considering the commission to the disciples after his death and resurrection. And the verses we read just a few moments ago are verses that end our service every week. I hope that those Words of Jesus, along with God's blessing, are ringing in your ears every time you leave these doors. But how you understand those words is very important, isn't it? You know, a boat, for example, that gets off course by a single degree on its, uh, on its journey. Over the course of time, if it's not corrected, will find itself many, many miles off course. And every week... We gather to worship and receive grace from God, and He sends us out with these words. But what is He sending you out to do? As you are commissioned to make disciples of all the nations, what is it that we are supposed to do? What's our purpose as a church? It's always good to pause and remind ourselves of that. Matthew 28 is is a section of Scripture that we as a church should return to constantly, because in it Jesus tells us, the church's mission. He tells us the methods that we must use to pursue that mission and the means that he gives us to accomplish it. And that's the headings that will, that will draw this out under today. What's the church's mission, the methods that we are to use, and the means that Jesus gives us? First, the mission. The church's mission, in verse ni- uh, we see it in verse 19. Jesus tells the gathered disciples to, quote, make disciples. Verse 19. Grammatically, in Greek, this is actually the only uh, verb, the only command in the Greek sentence. Make disciples. And at that time, a disciple was someone who was bonded to a master to learn some kind of trade, like masonry or uh, building, shipbuilding, or in academic or philosophical pursuits, it was someone dedicated to learning, applying, and disseminating their teacher's thoughts. Today, the best word that we probably have to capture um, the idea behind disciple, there would be something like an apprentice. More than a hired hand, an apprentice is someone who sets out, yes, to learn the master's trade, but also his thought and his way of life. Indeed, Jesus says in Luke's gospel that a disciple is not above his teacher, but when everyone is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. The apostles, whom Jesus is speaking to, understood this, of course, because they had been disciples of Jesus's for three years already now. Yes, they heard his teaching, but they also were with him in life and ministry. Matthew records and Mark records for us that Jesus called them to himself that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And the call for the church today remains the same, to make disciples. Those who know Jesus and have yielded their lives to obeying him in faith and love from the heart, who live life with him, to lead those who believe in Jesus to maturity, to be like Jesus in thought and word and deed. It is not simply 
to make converts, to convince people of the claims of Jesus and to get them to have mental assent and agree to it, but to live life with him, the resurrected Christ becoming like him. That's the one command that's given in the Great Commission. Make disciples. Teach people to be with Jesus and like him. That's the command, but what's the scope? Where are we supposed to draw these disciples from? Well, he says also in in verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Verse 19, the scope is the entire world. You remember last week, we talked about how from the very beginning, from from the book of Genesis, God has promised a ruler who would bring blessing to all the nations and that all the nations would submit to him. Right? You remember we talked about that last week. That was the hope of the prophets. In Isaiah, God says this of the Messiah, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations, to be my salvation, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49.6 In fact, the very first verse of Matthew's gospel calls Jesus the son of Abraham reminding us of God's original promise to Abraham that through him, through his descendant, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And last week we saw a foretaste, the very beginning of that fulfillment, as the wise men came from the east to worship and submit themselves and offer gifts to the Messiah. Now in the very last verses of Matthew's Gospel, we find these gathered disciples standing on a mountain with Jesus, learning that God's promise of international blessing to Abraham would culminate here. The crucified and now risen Christ is the exalted judge of all the earth. And here is how God would fulfill that promise to Abraham. Here is how all the nations of the earth would be blessed as people from every tribe and tongue and nations submit themselves to worship Jesus, the exalted King, to look for Him for the forgiveness of sins and commit themselves to learning His way of life from the heart. The Apostle John looked forward to the culmination of this process in Revelation 7-9 saying this, Behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. It's Revelation 7-9. The whole world, bowing before Jesus in worship and submission to Him taken together, the commission given to the disciples and onto us is to gather others from every nation under heaven who will render heartfelt worship and obedience to the risen Christ. And that call remains the same for us. That, that's the commission. That's the mission. It's a grand project. And when you think of John's vision, it makes you ask, what does that look like? How do you actually get at that? What is is going to produce people from every tribe and tongue and nation falling down before Christ and worshiping him and obeying him 
and believing in his salvation. How do you get at that as an individual, as a church, as families? How can we know, in other words, if we're, we're actually fulfilling our task week in and week out? Fortunately, we're not left to guess. The scriptures record for us that the apostles fulfilled Christ's command by starting and nurturing churches of maturing disciples. By starting and nurturing churches of maturing disciples. In Acts chapter 2, as the narrative moves forward, beginning at Pentecost, the events of Pentecost serve as a kind of paradigm for fulfilling the Great Commission. As you move throughout the book of Acts, that pattern that happens at Pentecost, we'll discuss more in a moment, happens over and over and over again. And as you read through Acts, you realize this is the way the apostles fulfilled this command of Christ. But as we look at Acts 2 specifically, we'll also see that all of the methods that Jesus enjoins upon us in Matthew 28 are employed there. So let's look, in the, look, let's look at those now. Let's look at the methods. How are we going to get at this? He gives us three. He says, go, baptize, and teach. Go, baptize, teach to obey. The first is go. Now, not to point out the obvious, but no church or individual disciple can go without moving outward, without moving beyond itself, beyond himself or herself. Every church must have an evangelistic impulse or it cannot fulfill Christ's commission. And the point of Acts 2 is we see this is exactly how it played out. When the Spirit was poured out on the disciples in Acts 2, Peter and the other uh, 11 apostles, what did they do? They preached. They proclaimed the good news. It says in Acts chapter 2, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And when this sound occurred, the multitude gathered together, continuing in verse 7, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. That's Acts 2, uh, 1 through 7. The emphasis on Acts 2 is not the speaking in other languages. That's needed because people from all nations under heaven were gathered there. The emphasis is not on, on the miraculous gift of languages, as incredible as that is. But when the people hear the apostles preaching, what is amazing to them, what stands out to them is, They're preaching the mighty works of God. When the Spirit falls upon the church in order to empower the church to complete its mission, the first thing the apostles do is get up is proclaim the good news. Later, when Paul and Barnabas are sent by the church in Antioch to fulfill the mission that was given them by the Holy Spirit, you remember they were down in Antioch praying, and the Holy Spirit says to the congregation, separate Paul and Barnabas for the task that I have for them. Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch, and what do they do? They preach. They tell the good news. And it's not just church officers. When the persecution hits the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts, it tells us in chapter 8 this. 
At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Those who were scattered went about everywhere, preaching the word. Acts 8, 1 and 4. As you look, as the church fulfilled this commission that Christ gave it, throughout the book of Acts, every Christian is involved with either proclaiming the gospel or sending others to proclaim the gospel. And often, they're involved with both. I've spoken briefly already about the danger of, uh, of reducing the mission down to making converts, to simply, simply evangelism and con- you know, convincing people about Christ. And that's, that's a danger, that's a problem. But churches or individuals that underemphasize or lose this go, this evangelistic impulse in the commission, can become ingrown or preoccupied with their own concerns. And I can, I can sense the tension. Are you, are you saying that every one of us must be a street evangelist? Must, must we all approximate the life of an itinerant minister? No, I've, I've heard that, and that's, that's incorrect. I've, I've heard people say, hey, look, Jesus uh, went from town to town uh, preaching, and so every Christian, if you're a disciple, you must go from town to town preaching, okay? And, and I would say Jesus also wore a robe and sandals, right? But we don't have, <laughs> right, we don't have to do, uh, discipleship doesn't look like trying to approximate the life of a first century itinerant minister, but, but what I'm saying is this. As you work jobs, run businesses, learn in school, and raise children, don't lose sight of the fact that you're a disciple in a church with a commission to go and make disciples. You are to do all of those things, running businesses, learning, um, raising children, and so forth, um, in order that your lives might be conformed to Christ and so that those lives in turn might also be a witness to your neighbor. As Peter exhorts us, always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you for the hope that you have within you. And I, I say this because this is, this is Jesus' commission to us, not because we're not doing this as a church. We definitely, we definitely are. I mean, one of the wonderful things that we have going on as a congregation right now is the uh, Afghan hangout. It happens here every Wednesday. Right? This is our ability to use what God has given us, this facility, to open it up and invite uh, women in from a place where it would be nearly impossible for them to meet Christians and hear about the gospel in an unhindered way. And yet that happens here week after week after week. What I am saying is this. That's wonderful, and we can continue to learn. We can continue to grow. And so the application for this, I think, is to, to begin to pray and say, Lord, as a family, as an individual, as a church, will you open our eyes to the opportunities that we have to go to the neighbors around us who don't know, yet know Jesus, to the people in Springfield who don't yet know Jesus, to our neighbors who don't yet know Jesus. I think if you do, if you make that a consistent prayer of yours, you will be surprised at the many ways that the Lord might answer it. First one, first method is go. We must go. The second is baptize. 
And baptism speaks to the, the sacramental, to the communal nature of the church's mission because baptism is the means by which we're brought into covenant with Christ and with one another. In baptism, the, the triune name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is placed upon us and we are brought into a solemn covenant with Him. What an incredible privilege it is that when, when we're baptized, it's as if the family name of the triune God is given to us. That's what Jesus says. Baptize them in or into, in the Greek, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What a privilege it is that God has placed His name upon you. God wants to identify with you and for you to be identified with Him. But by entering into a covenant with God, we also enter into a covenant with one another. And one way that we know this is because all of the, all of the yous in the Great Commission, I am with you always to the end of the age, is plural. If we were um, speaking in Texas where the second person plural is still retained, right? we would, we would see that more grammatically. It would be, I am with y'all till the end of the age. <laughs> right? It's you all. Jesus Christ is with us. Yes, individuals, but us as a people were brought into covenant with one another. Let me show you this. In Acts 2, when the apostles preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, it says this, Those who gladly received Peter's words were baptized, and that day 3,000 souls were added. They were added to what? To the church at Jerusalem. Remember I said that those who who were scattered in the persecution went about preaching the word? Well, we find in Acts 11 that a large number who believed turned to the Lord, 11.21. Paul and Barnabas go down and help with the work, and for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, verse 26. And the pattern continues all throughout the book of Acts as Paul and Barnabas leave, and they preach the word, and people believe immediately you'll find that the book of Acts begins to refer to the church in that area. As people believe and are baptized, they're incorporated into local churches. Baptism so represents identification with Christ and a local congregation that one commentator rightly says, I think, this, quote, the story of the spread of the gospel is the story of local churches, end quote. In this way, your baptism is like a, a team jersey. And I think Pastor Sexton has used this analogy. Other pastors have used this analogy. It's not a complete or full analogy. I mean, baptism is, is an amazing reality. But it is true in this, that a jersey identifies the wearer with the rest of the team and the collective identity of the team. And it's worn by those who actually participate with the team, right? Unless you buy it from a... Uh, from a a big box store. When you actually join the team, baptism is a real, a real um, joining of the covenant with Christ and other people. And that's the joy of it, is that you get to participate. You are part of the mission. Uh, God has identified with you, and you are identified with others, and we all, um, and we all get to take part. Pastor uh, Mark Dever has a great analogy for when this communal nature of the Great Commission is lost or underemphasized. He says, that in that instance, the church becomes a lot like the DMV. He says this, quote, When the DMV gives you a driver's license, you have the ability to drive wherever you want. They give you the responsibility, and then you are on your own. There are no weekly gatherings of people with driver's licenses. 
There is no need to know the names of other licensees or to care for one another. There are no driver's license pastors or shepherds whose work is to make sure that you're growing in your understanding of motor vehicle safety. Sure, maybe people should check in on the church once in a while, like getting your license renewed every few years. And they should keep reading their Bibles and learning. But really, it is all up to them now. End quote. No, the church is not spiritual DMV. The church is a family. God has placed his family name on you and I. And, and we are involved not only with him, but with one another. And that's really, really good news because we all long for and need community. We all long for and need community. Sin isolates us, and sometimes we want the, the me and my Bible approach because dealing with other believers is hard. We're not all as sanctified as we could wish, and yet our baptism points us to Christ. And realize that that means that your baptism points you to the church because the church is the one community where sin can be decisively dealt with. Right? And so as we are sanctified, as we live life with one another, the community that, that God experiences, the community that God calls us into, we get to participate with, with him and with one another. It's baptism. Final way that we're to make disciples is by teaching them to observe all that I command you. Again, that's verse 19. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And the Greek expression there, all things, is actually two terms. Uh, one means all things, and the other means as much as. So if we were going to just literally put this on the page, it would be, teach them as much as all things as I have commanded you. Right? And so the point that Jesus is using is to underline uh, the comprehensive scope of the teaching, to leave no doubt that what he means is for his disciples to come to maturity. Again, Acts chapter 2 serves as the pattern for us, where we read that when the Spirit is poured out on the church, the effect, one of the effects is this, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2, 42. In the Gospels pages, we read Jesus' commands, and we learn how to heed them. We see, above all, that Jesus desires obedience that comes from the heart, that radiates outward with love. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, you shall not kill. Jesus adds in Matthew 5 that we should not hate or despise or mock others. Jesus desires heart-level obedience. Obviously, such whole life and wholehearted commands demand a whole life and wholehearted approach to learning. One cannot learn to be Jesus' disciple from books and seminars alone. As Jesus taught the disciples, his teaching, he included times of larger instructions with groups, one-on-one interaction and discussion, counsel and guidance and practice in the life that they were learning. And actually, one cannot ordinarily learn to follow Jesus and become like him on their own, which is why the apostles, as they fulfilled this commission, started churches. Churches teach through preaching and singing and praying and reading and discussing and practicing and living 
the commands of Christ. Elders teach in word and deed, and every member also teaches by modeling Christ's likeness for one another and speaking the truth in love to one another so that the body builds itself up in love. This is true of following Jesus, and it's true of, of any complicated pursuit in life. It demands, um, it demands many different ways of getting at learning. When I was... Uh, in my last year of college, I wanted to learn how to lap swim, how to swim for exercise. I knew how to swim to survive, but I wanted to be able to, to do laps in the pool. And in God's providence, I found my friend's um, swimming textbook in his closet. Okay, so I had all of the pictures laid out there for me, and I could read the paragraph, and I could, I could imitate what I was learning. All right, and that's exactly what I did. I got the book. I brought it to the pool with me. I would read a paragraph, and we would go for it. And that's a lot like opening your Bible. You have your Bible. You have the Spirit. You can read Christ's life, his commands, and you can, you can imitate him. All right? But I needed to practice. It would not have done me any good to simply read through all 200 pages of the book and think, oh, now I can swim. If I had done that and jumped in the water, I would have been disabused of that notion quickly. Right? It, it requires practice of what you're trying to imitate. But I didn't really begin to be able to swim until I got in the pool with uh, my roommate who had actually taken the class. And he knew what he was doing. And he could point out, oh, you see, you know, your angle's wrong here, your stroke is wrong here. And I began to um, improve. And for a while, that's what I would do for exercise. I would lap swim. But it required the theory. It required the imitation. It required the practice. It required the discussion. It required the sharpening. And learning to follow Jesus is of much greater importance and of much uh, deeper reality than learning something like swimming or um, how to play a sport. But it requires you to have others around you to speak into your life who are, who are themselves also following Jesus. They can point out to you, oh, your angle's wrong here, your stroke is wrong here, right? We need each other for accountability. We need the theory, we need the scriptures, and we need God's spirit. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited about uh, Sunday school because we are, we are speaking the truth, as it says in Ephesians 4, to one another in love and building one another up. So I know we are doing this as a congregation and within our families. Well, I want to give you the same application, the same challenge as the go, um, as with teaching, is, is begin to pray and ask God to open your eyes and say, Lord, what is one way this year that I can do spiritual good to someone else. One-on-one discussion, reading a book, uh, praying with someone else within, our, with my, within my own family, for my spouse, for someone else in the church. And again, I think you'll be surprised as God begins to answer your prayer. It's what he wants us to do as a church. So those are the three methods. The mission, make disciples of all nations. The methods, go, baptize, and teach. We're still aiming at a throne room of people from every tribe worshiping the Lord. What's the power? How? What's the means that we need to accomplish that? That's what Jesus gives us at the end. And I love that our scene in the Great Commission begins with worship because gathered in worship is the beginning and the end of the Great Commission. It says this in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, They worshipped, but some doubted. 
That term for doubt is not, is not the ordinary term for doubt in the Bible. It means hesitate. Like when Peter is walking on the water, Peter has faith to walk on the water, and he begins to sink, and Jesus grabs him. He says, why did you fear, or why did you doubt? Right, depending on your translation, it's that word. Peter believed Jesus, but he also hesitated. The commission then is for those who believe and worship Jesus and are human because the power for fulfilling it comes from Christ. Jesus supplies two means for us to fulfill this charge, his own authority and his power. We never need to hesitate or apologize whenever we speak of Christ we, with, we are within our rights. We have Christ's authority. And we also have all the power we need, for we have the very presence of God with us. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, he says in verse 18. And now that seems strange, right? Like, didn't Jesus already have all authority and power? He's the eternal Son of God. He is God, right? But here's a wonderful reminder of the gospel, because he's speaking about himself as God come in the flesh, the God-man who died for the sins of his people and rose from the dead and is now being exalted into heaven. It is the one who loved you and gave himself for you who now is in a position to exercise power in the world and in history. His resurrection assures final victory because he has all authority in heaven and on earth as the exalted Christ. He has authority over death itself. And that would be well enough. But he also promises us his presence. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Verse 20. I will not leave you as orphans, he promised the disciples, but I will come to you. And he did. On Pentecost, he sent his own spirit to the church, and you have that same spirit residing in you. As you work, it's Christ working in you and through you. The resurrection of Christ assures us that God will not redeem just souls, but bodies and bring about a new heavens and a new earth. As the risen Christ, he stands, not just with us in our present time, but he waits also at the end of history to heal and renew everything. That's his promise. Therefore, we worship and obey him, and we bring the rest of the world to do so without fear. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus and that he has died for our sins and has risen from the dead. We thank you for the presence of your indwelling spirit and the commission given to us as a church to become mature disciples and to bring and make disciples of all nations. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace in our hearts to love and obey you to that end as a people, as families, and as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen.